Uh, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapters 9 and 10. We're actually looking at two chapters together this morning. So if you've got a Bible, if you want to be there uh, with me, uh, as you guys are turning there, I want to start with uh, something that I think we can all agree on. And that is, job hunting is miserable, right? It has to be one of the worst things as an adult that you can do, um, particularly when you are just getting started out trying to find your first job. Uh, And it's miserable for a whole host of reasons. Uh, Some of it has to do with the uncertainty, not knowing what's going to be happening. Sometimes we find ourselves in a situation where we've lost a job and where our entire life depends on finding a new job. But I think probably the worst part of applying to jobs, going to interviews, all this stuff, is the endless, over-the-top self-promotion that you have to do whenever you are searching for a job. Uh, When you get thrust into that time period in your life where you're looking and you're sending out your resume and you're going to different interviews, you really quickly find out there are really only two things that matter at that point in time. It's who you are and it's what you've done. But the really frustrating part about those being the only two things that matter about you is they matter in a way that really isn't that important. The who you are part, it isn't really who you are. It's not your character necessarily. Who's going to be able to find out what kind of character you have in a job interview, right? Really, the who you are boils down to usually how you look and where you come from, right? And then what you've done. What you've done, it, 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 it's, it, it is things that you've done. It is your past. It, it is previous experience. But I would say it's probably not even, it doesn't feel like at least, the things that really matter, the things that are most important that you've done with your life. It is simply a lot of times it's work. This is what I've done to survive in the past. So I'm telling you, it somehow qualifies me for what I want to do here at this particular company. But it's not, it's not the big stuff. Uh, I, I remember when Hannah and I first uh, got married, um, I needed a job uh, that was different than the job I'd had all through high school and um, in college uh, during the summers. I, I needed something that I could work uh, in the evenings, and, and they would work with my school schedule. So I started applying at retail companies, and I'd never worked in retail before. And so I, I, I knew as I was applying at all of these different uh, big companies in the mall and, and all this different stuff is that I didn't really have job experience that related to the job I was applying for. I, I didn't have that to go off of. So what I had done in the past wasn't all that impressive to the companies I was applying to. So I had to go the route of who I am, namely what I look like. And let's all be, you know, I mean, we all know this is a face That will not get you employed. And so I knew that starting out, the thing I had to do was impress them in a way that nobody else would. And so I decided every job interview that I went to, I was going to wear a suit and a tie. Imagine how ridiculous I felt sitting in a Lowe's break room in a suit and tie with a bunch of other people applying for the same job, all in jeans and a t-shirt and everything like that. But guess what? It worked. The two places I applied for, I got job offers to. Uh, you know, just 22 years old, having to pick between Sears and Lowe's. I was on top of the world. I had everything at my disposal. Who you are and what you've done, but not in ways that we think that really do matter. That is why job hunting is so miserable to me. 
Having to walk in and say, I'm the best at this, or I do these things great. Yeah, there are really no flaws. I would say my biggest weakness is I try too hard. I care too much, right? All that ridiculous jargon that we hate that is not natural to most of us. Some of you are thinking, you know, oh man, I love, I love applying for jobs. Because if there's anything I love talking about, it's how great I am. That's not me. But probably what's most frustrating about all this, as you think about it, is, is to realize when you really do think about it, is actually how much we are conditioned to live this way all the time, not just when we're applying for jobs. We see everything in our life through the lens of how will this look on a resume? Is this taking me somewhere I want to go? Is this going to make me look as though I'm successful and I have my life together? What's more is we do this all the time because we tend to look at one another the same way we look at the people that are sitting in that break room applying for the same job we are. We start comparing ourselves. We size ourselves up. I mean, I knew the moment I walked in in a suit and tie, I've got this job over the guy in a cutoff t-shirt. Like, that was like no problem at all. If you're unsure about that in any way, just really quickly, not trying to make a point in terms of like, oh, we're so bad or we're superficial or anything like that. It's just simply that we are conditioned this way. Think back to the last time that you were in a conversation with someone that you were trying to describe to them or they were trying to describe to you someone that they knew that you didn't. How quickly did you start talking about the way the person looked? As though somehow that really described really truly who they are. We size people up. It's not that we're bad. It's not that we're awful people. It's not that we should be really convicted by that. It's just simply saying this is the world we live in. This is the way we've been conditioned. Our jobs, finding jobs, finding employment, finding stable income so that we can live and support our family. It's such a huge part of our life that it's hard for it not to affect affect the rest of our life and how we see things, mainly how we see ourselves, how we see others, and how we see the world working. Talk about the misery of applying for jobs because Israel has a job posting open this morning in our passage They're looking for a king. We saw last week as Pastor Ed talked about that finally God tells Israel, says, all right, you've asked for a king. I'll give you a king. And it's funny, as soon as he says that, he tells tells Samuel, tell him to go home. Like he's tired of hearing about it. I'll take care of it. I'll find someone. And so as we begin in chapter 9 this morning, we're introduced to Saul as someone that is a potential hire for the position of king. And the way that Saul is described to us, as we see here in the first two verses, is that Saul has everything going for him that we would look for in a king over us. There in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, it says, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zerah, son of Becherath, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Right there, two verses. We find out two really important things about Saul. At least the way we would think that they're important. That is, Saul is wealthy. 
comes from a family of wealth. We, it's not just simply that the author of 1 Samuel tells us that Kish, his father, was a man of wealth. It's that he goes through the lineage, the genealogy of Saul, meaning that it was a family of some stature. So it's not just simply that Saul comes from wealth. He comes from old money. He comes from an upright, good-standing family. What's more, Saul's pretty pleasant on the eyes. He's tall, he's good-looking, he's handsome. We see later that as Saul enters into the city where Samuel's at, well, there's a bunch of women that come out to talk to him. And you know, one of the commentators said it's probably because he was good-looking that they wanted to talk to him. And so if we're looking for a king, if this is someone applying for the position, we're thinking we're off to a good start. This is something we can work with. Because you can't teach family and you can't teach looks. So maybe that's all we need to start with and we can go somewhere. He has a respectable family. He has good looks. We can build on this. You see, Israel wanted a king. But they didn't just want any king. They wanted a king that could handle his own with the other kings around them. They wanted someone that wouldn't get lost in the shuffle of the other kings. They wanted someone that you looked at and you said, that's what a king looks like. And so, in the hearts, in the minds of the people of Israel, when they asked God for a king, they didn't just say, God, give us who you want, who you think will be best. They said, give us the person that we look at and think, now there's a king. You know, it's kind of crazy when you think about it that, that you would say, well, we want our king to be good looking. Because as one episode in Seinfeld would point out to us, it's that most of the people then are ruled out. How many people do you think in the pop, are dateable? 90, 10% maybe. It's kind of crazy to say that the person that you want leading you, the person that's going to be responsible for the direction of your country, for taking care of you, for pointing you to God, for doing exactly what Israel had asked God to give them a king to do, that is to judge them. That one of the major qualifications that you would say is, by the way, we want him to be good looking. All of a sudden, you're ruling out a majority of the people. It's like hunting for a job and saying, I only want a job in this specific area. Sure, you can find one there. But the chances of you finding the right job in that very spot, well, you're just making the odds a little bit longer for yourself. Before we go any further, it's important to notice in the next two chapters, even though this is where the author begins, it's only mentioned one other place that Saul is good looking at all. It's, it's actually in chapter 10. The only time that the author of 1 Samuel thinks to remind us of Saul's stature, his physical appearance, is when he's been anointed, after he's actually been anointed as king, and in front of the people, they now know that it's Saul that has, as they've cast lots, that it's Saul that's going to be king over them. And they're looking for him, and he's hiding in luggage, there in 1 Samuel chapter 10, there in verse 20, it says, Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. 
He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he's hidden himself among the baggage. Probably not a good sign for somebody that's just been named king, right? Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Yeah, probably not a good sign. That at coronation time, Saul's off hiding. He's hiding in luggage. Probably not a good sign because he had had a previous encounter with Samuel. Samuel had told him, had actually anointed him as king. had told him, you're going to see three signs today. All those signs happen. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And still, having been shown by God in some pretty miraculous ways, Saul doesn't believe what God wants to do, that he is to be Israel's king, and so he runs off and he hides. And the author of 1 Samuel, again, kind of goes to this place, not so much of saying, oh, hey, guys, remember, though, he was tall, of pointing out what it is that the Israelites were looking at, what it is that you and I tend to look at. That here's this guy that they've just pulled out of a luggage heap, but all they can see is the fact that he stands head and shoulders above everybody else. Saul being anointed and chosen as king is a really important lesson for us to remember. That the way that things appear blinds us to the way that things really are. That we can get so caught up on the outward appearance of something that we will not see how things really are, even when it's so obvious that everybody else is like, how can you not see that? How can you not see that maybe this guy, I don't know, maybe somebody that's a little bit more willing? I don't That might help. Somebody that actually has maybe, I don't know, the confidence or just at least the bravery to kind of stand in and say, well, if God wants me to do it, I'll do it. The way things appear blinds us to the way things are. And it's not just simply that it blinds us to the way things are in other people with other things. It actually blinds us to the way things are, especially in ourselves. We put as much stock in how we appear on the outside as we do in how others appear. That we see that our life is put together. We dress well. We look well. People congratulate us. Give us accolades. And we get so wrapped up in that we never stop to think, but what am I really about? What is really going on in my heart and in my soul? What am I living for? Who am I living for? We never stop to ask those questions. And our world is full of people just going through day by day thinking as long as things appear good on the surface of my life, I never have to stop. I never have to question. I never have to check my heart and my desires. 
This is why God doesn't take stock in how Saul looks or where he comes from. Saul's wealth and his looks are never given as a reason for him being king because God doesn't need them. God does not need who you are or where you come from to do what he wants to do with you. Don't forget that the way that things appear blinds us to the way things really are. But that means if, if this is a job and Saul's applying for it, if, if, if he's being lifted up as a potential candidate, then if he doesn't have the who you are to go off of, he must have a strong work history, right? I mean, he's got experience to go off of. A pretty impressive resume. But that isn't really the picture we see here either. In fact, what we, when we find Saul, he's in the midst of a pretty big waste of time. Uh, he's literally chasing his dad's lost donkeys. He's on a donkey chase. And he's walked around, he's gone through quite a bit of the land, hasn't been able to find them. He's ready to give up and go back. He kind of uses the excuse of, hey, my dad might start to get worried about me, so maybe we should go back. That's sort of thing. Utter and complete failure. What's more is it's not just him that knows it. As Saul's servant that's gone along with him convinces him to go into the nearby city where a seer, a prophet, is at. It ends up being Samuel. They, as they walk into the city, Samuel greets Saul and he tells him, Hey man, don't worry about your donkeys. They've been found. It's not just that Saul is the only one that knows he's had a pretty big waste of time, that he's messed up in a pretty significant way. Samuel knows. And that means God knows. And so if there was ever a time to be putting your name out there as a potential king, this is probably not it, right? This is like the equivalent of handing your resume in and, saying, and then saying, I noticed you haven't worked for the last five years. Can you explain that? And being like, no, not really. Just hasn't happened See, to get a job, you need experience. Better yet, you need accomplishments. And we all know if you don't have either of those, make it up, right? Because we all know resumes have their own kind of language. Someone once on a resume said that their job experience included single-handedly Managing the successful upgrade and deployment of a new environmental illumination system with zero cost overruns and zero safety accidents. Pretty impressive, right? In reality, what they meant to say was, I changed light bulbs. <laughs> if it's not that impressive, make it sound impressive, right? I mean, it's, it's still true. It's still something. I like to imagine that's what Steve Morrow has on his uh, resume. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there might be a fight in the parking lot after. A <laughs> little bit more complicated than that. But you see, none of that's going on here, though. 
We don't see Saul spinning this. We don't see it, him making it into something. Oh, no, we meant to lose my dad's donkeys and not find them. And this is a good thing. This is actually like going to like work for us in the long run. No. Saul's in the midst of a pretty big failure. He's lost a part of his family's wealth. And everyone, at least everyone that matters, seems to know it. And plus, apparently, Saul tells us as he's talking to Samuel that he's not all that important, his family's not all that important, and his wealth isn't all that impressive. And so the fact that he's lost this herd, he's, we're potentially looking at the downfall of a family, their history, their wealth, their legacy. Yet even in the midst of that, we find Samuel being told by God that this is the guy. He says there in chapter 9, verses 15 through 17, it says, Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time, I will send a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. And when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. It is he who shall restrain my people. It's kind of like God's never appointed a king before, right? It's like he's never done this thing. It's like he is the guy in the interview where you're like, I, I think I could ask myself better questions than what you're asking me, right? Don't you get how this works? Like, talk about where my family's from. Talk about how wealthy we are. Talk, talk about that. And, and what's more is, wouldn't you think that he would look at this and be like, man, dude, you can't even find donkeys. How are you supposed to, like, run a country? But the reason all this is brought out, the reason that we're told about this, and the author goes through painstaking process and uses up so much space to give us what a complete failure Saul is in this moment, is that there is a lesson in this for all of us. And that is we need to stop living our lives like we're applying for a job. Stop living your life comparing yourself to everyone else in the room. Stop living your life spinning every mistake and setback to make it sound better than it actually is. Stop thinking that everything has to be moving you in a certain direction. For you and your life to matter. Stop thinking that it all has to meet your, or even worse, the world's measurement of success. That, as we already have talked about, is based on some pretty superficial stuff that doesn't matter. Most importantly, you have to, we have to stop thinking that we cannot make a mistake or take a wrong turn out of fear that it might ruin our life. That somehow it will disqualify us from the most important thing in the world, and that is what God wants us to do with our life. I think we all suffer with this, this feeling as though our life is constantly under the microscope in the same way that it is whenever we apply for a job. 
We're conditioned this way by our world, but also I, I think something that feeds into that is the fact that we're given, as Jesus leaves the disciple, the great commission. As he leaves the disciples, he gives us the great commission. He gives us this mission to live our lives on. He says that if you are my disciples, you're going to go and make disciples. And so we're given a job. It's one that we weren't necessarily applying for, but hey, okay, if Jesus says it, we want to do it. And so let us know, like, what what do we need to be? What do we need to do to fulfill that job? And the crazy thing is, is that we're around it so often. When he says you're going to be disciples and make disciples, we're like, well, we know exactly what that means. That means that God needs qualified people. He needs people with experience. He needs people that are put together, have their lives in order. Because, I mean, let's face it, to help other people, you've got to take care of yourself first, right? You've got to have it all together. He needs, more importantly, he needs charismatic people. He needs entrepreneurs. He needs people that will think outside the box, people that will think of things that nobody else will. He needs people that are special, that people can look up to and say, there's someone to follow. There is a model of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. That's what a king really does. And so because we know what God wants, we think we know what he needs, and most importantly, we think we know what we need to be. And so we live our lives trying to live up to something that we have created in our own minds. And the crazy thing is, is we don't even know what in the world he's talking about. Israel thought they knew. Israel was so wrapped up in the idea of a king. They wanted a king, and they wanted a king in the way that they knew kings worked. They wanted a king in the same way that the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians had and wanted kings. The Egyptians understood that kings came straight from deities. So if you can imagine... There was a lot to do with looks wrapped up in that. We want a king like that. The Mesopotamians understood kings as a necessary function in the hierarchy of creation. If you didn't have a king, everything was going to go crazy. And so kings were there as necessary because without them, everything would be left to chaos. Yet here in verses 15 through 17 that we already read, notice that the word king is never used. God actually tells Samuel, when he's, anoint, when he's going to anoint Saul, that this is going to be the one who is a prince over my people. Why? Because God's already their king. Notice too, there at the very end in verse 17, it says, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. It is him who shall restrain my people. Very intentionally, the word for rule that is often used in the Old Testament is not used here. It's the Hebrew word asar, which literally means to hold back. What's Saul's role going to be as king of Israel? Not like other kings' roles. He's not going to, not only is he not going to look like them or come from where they come from or be as experienced and accomplished as all of them, he's going to function differently. He is going to be the one that keeps God's people from running after other gods. He's going to simply restrain them. 
Israel has no idea what it's talking about, what is needed or what is even valuable when it comes to who their king will be and what he will do. In the same way, you and I have no idea of what is important to God and what he will use when it comes to you and I making disciples in the name of Jesus. What we see that Saul needs more than anything else isn't experience, isn't a win to put on a resume, isn't some grand vision that he can sell the people on. All the things that we normally look at in leadership, it's not even that his life is put together. In fact, it seems like in this moment, Saul's life is potentially falling apart. He's a mess. What Saul needed more than anything else to be the king God was calling him to be was God's grace in his life. And God was working to bring that about even in the midst of one of Saul's greatest mistakes. There in, there in chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed Saul and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you shall, will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Samuel anoints Saul, and that is huge because the idea of anointing, when they took the oil and they poured it over, I mean, they go into great detail to explain that this stuff dripped everywhere. Everything was covered. It was a Gatorade bath. And it was symbolic of the fact that God was over him and touching everything about him, in him, and around his life. We have something very similar when we baptize people. that The symbolism of, of, of being submerged in the water, completely covered of it, washed clean, coming out, that there's nothing in your life that God has not touched. This was the same idea. That's what Saul needed in his life to be the king God was calling him to be, not the things that Israel was looking at, not the things that Saul and you and I would think were important. Once he does this, Samuel tells him there's going to be three signs. The last sign that you're going to see is that you're going to actually prophesy with a group of prophets that you come across. And we're told that as Saul goes, all three of those things happen. And then in verse 9, it says, When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him, meaning Saul, another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. This is the point. This is what God's after. This is what you and I need in the same way that Saul needed. We don't need a flashy resume. What we need is God to change our heart. We need a new heart. We need the grace of God to work in our lives in a way that we are not willing to allow him to work in on a day-by-day -day basis. And the reason that God does this now at this point in Saul's life is to show us that our mistakes are opportunities for God's grace. They are not holes in your work experience. They are places where God can work in your life in a way that he would not have worked it otherwise. It is our mistakes that bring us closer to God. It, it, it was Moses' mistakes that forced him to flee into the desert, and there he meets God. There he understands his need for God. 
It was Paul's mistake that when he was on a path to commit more murder against the church and Christ confronts him and points out just how wrong he's been, that Paul can see the depth and the breadth of his mistake and give his life to Jesus. Our mistakes put us into the path of where God can talk to us, not just geographically, but spiritually. That we can understand how wrong we've been and allow the grace of Christ to change us in a way that normally on our day-to-day, when we have it all put together, we will not allow him to begin to even touch. Our mistakes are not places in our life to be glossed over. They are places in our life to lift up because it is there that Jesus is working in his most real sense in us. To make us not who we want to be or think we need to be, but who he wants us to be. The disciple makers that he has called us to be. We have to stop seeing our mistakes as just that and understand that they are the realest opportunity for God to work in our life. Um, John Newton uh, grew up in a home that was Christian, uh, but his mother died uh, shortly before he turned seven. And uh, by the time he was 11, he had entered into, um, he was a sailor. And as um, most people do in their life, especially sailors, he walked away from his faith, actually ended up uh, getting into uh, the slave trade business, made a lot of money off of it, trading people, treating them as commodities, treating them as though their lives don't matter, that they aren't made in the image of God. It was actually during a, um, a, a storm, and, and their boat had a, a pretty, pretty big uh, hole in it from uh, the damage of the waves, and uh, he prayed for the first time uh, in a long time. And as he was praying the ship's cargo shifted and plugged the hole. He took that as a sign that God answered his prayer, and so he gave his life to Jesus. And he would tell you, it wasn't like right then and there he was a full-on believer. It, It took time. There was a lot to overcome, a lot that he had done, a lot of mistakes he had made. And you would think for somebody like that, they would just kind of, you know, lay low, thank God that He'd saved him, but who am I to speak? Who am I to talk? Look at the things I've done in my past. John Newton actually ended up becoming one of the greatest proponents and most important people in the abolition of slavery in Britain because of the things he had seen and because of what God had done in his life. And he knew that that meant God had a purpose for him. God wanted him to do something more. You probably might not know that about John Newton, but what you do know that John Newton did is he wrote the lyrics to Amazing Grace. A song that is probably one of the most popular hymns that we have, most people know. A song that plums the depths of what God's grace means and can look like in the life of someone who has made grievous mistakes. We would like to think that the knowledge of something like what that song talks about comes from having your life put together. That comes from a lifetime of walking with Christ and never having a misstep, never having significant travels, never hurting other people. 
But the reality is, is that we can only know the depth of God's grace when we know the depth of our mistakes. And that we're willing to own them for what they are, to not spin them in some way to make them sound better than they are. What's more is to know it's in them that we find Jesus in a way we wouldn't have otherwise. On his tombstone, John Newton had inscribed, Once an infidel and libertine, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Our mistakes are an opportunity for us to finally allow God to give us the grace he wants to and the grace that we so desperately need. There's so many different ways for us to know this. This is a hard thing for us to incorporate into our life. And so really quickly, this is a terrible way to preach, but let me just say one way that this can become a pattern of our life, one way that we can make sure we can become people that are open to the grace of God because we're willing to own our mistakes in the places that we don't have it all together is in community. It's to be around other people that give us the freedom to admit where we've screwed up. To be around other people that we do the same thing, to know that they feel the same way that we do. For people to be able to point out to us how God's grace might be working in the midst of something where we can only see how this hurts us and disqualifies us. This is why God has given us the church. This is why we as a church believe so much in community in the form of small groups, in the form of going through follow, in so many different ways of just simply studying Scripture together. Why? Because it's a place for us to admit where we don't have it together, where we have screwed up, but what's more is to admit and acknowledge and own and celebrate The fact that that does not define us, that in Jesus Christ, he is using those mistakes. And maybe those are the things that actually qualify us the most to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. If you do not have people in your life, in one way or another, that are encouraging you to live in light of your mistakes because there it's where we find the grace of Jesus the most, That is something you need, and you need to talk to one of us pastors about it because we want nothing more than for the grace of Jesus to be running rampant through your life. Not because of who you are or what you've done, but because what Jesus has done on the cross for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. It It is the air we breathe. And to know that In the moment that we admit our need for you because of things we have done, places that we have taken missteps, uh, just how we have sized ourselves up wrong, you meet us with grace upon grace. Father, help us to be people that our hearts are open and humble enough to be filled with your grace. Help us in this time. Lord, would you give us your Holy Spirit, and empower us to admit our mistakes and admit that we need Jesus. And that is the only thing that makes us anyone or anything. 
It's in your name we pray. Amen.